Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Buker and Friends podcast. Here is your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buker. Rick Buker. Welcome to another coronavirus episode of Buker Friendless, subsidiary of Buker and Friends and part of the United WeCast Network. I'm Rick Buker. You can see me on FS1. You can hear me on Fox Sports Radio. You can read me on Bleacher Report. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram at Rick Buecher. That's R-I-C-B-U-C-H-E-R. I'm a lot of places. But there's only one place you can hear just me talking about what I exclusively feel are the most important or interesting topics in the sports world, primarily, but not exclusively, involving the NBA. And that's here. All right. We are recording this after the reopening of the NBA season, and it feels good. It just feels good. I, I don't know how else to put it. I, I actually, in sitting down and getting ready to do this and watching the game, it took me back to my days as a beat writer where you'd watch a game and you'd be caught up in the excitement of trying to follow all the details, and then you had to sit down afterward and write. And it was actually a good thing because I, I, could, never go, I could never watch a game, even now, watching a game at home. Um, I can't watch a game and then immediately go to sleep. So the ability or the, have the reason to write afterward was always good. And then we, what we used to do back in the day uh, when I was covering the Warriors as a beat writer is they allowed us to play pickup on the court afterward. So we'd all get done about 11, 11.15 and then guys would bring an extra bag of gear and we'd probably play until 1 o'clock, 1.30 and then you'd go home and then then you could go to sleep at that point. So don't quite have that, but I have this. And so this is going to be an all-NBA podcast, and it's going to be a rather simple one. we got three topics that we have to hit, and we can go by names. Reggie Miller, LeBron James, and Kyrie Irving. Those are going to be our three subjects for this podcast. And we'll start with the, the lightest one, or the one that is I just I guess the most amusing to me because and that's Reggie Miller because my kids are I got two middle teenagers uh, both both basketball players hoopers and a girl and a boy and they were asking me seeing that Reggie was trending um, and I was watching the game with my son and 
And so, you know, Reggie just said some things and my son looked at me kind of sideways, like, what the hell is he saying? And this is a tricky subject for me just because I, I covered Reggie as a player. I knew what he was as a player. And he was a really, he was a very good, if not great player, very crafty, uh, disciplined, would go in hours before the game, had the Larry Bird mentality of, I'm going to go in and I'm going to go through my routine and I'm going to do it every day. He, uh, it, he just, everything, whether it was superstition or whether it was just extreme discipline and the belief in routine, he had everything done the same way uh, for every game. I even remember, like, I forget who it was. There was somebody, I don't know if he couldn't tie a tie, like a, a necktie, or he simply got into the habit of having somebody do it for him, but he would have that tie done for him after every game if he was wearing a tie. I, want to say, I don't think it was Mark Jackson. Mark Jackson was his boy on the Pacers, but I I just know that he did it. And I just it's one of those little things you see where you're like, really? Reggie doesn't know how to tie a tie? Or he is, it, it looked like he enjoyed having someone tie his tie and put it on him. Any event. We're watching the game and then, you know, Reggie says a few things or looks at the replay of the ball going out of bounds between Jermichael Green and Anthony Davis and he's, it's close and you watch the replay and it's really not close and then we watch the replay of the ball going out of bounds and this is the crazy part. We're literally watching the replay and seeing that the ball didn't touch Paul George's hand. We can see the space between his hand and the ball and Reggie is saying, uh, did it? Like, it's still a question instead of coming to a conclusion. And I, look, I can tell you why he is on TV and why he is he has been on you know a broadcast team for, for TNT uh, and, and does primetime games the way that he does because it's not what you know. It's, and it's not what you know, it's who you know. It's not that one. It's, it's how you sound. And what Reggie says, he says with conviction. And when he gets it wrong, he is not the least bit buffaloed or intimidated. He just keeps going. And that requires a certain skill and talent to be able to do that. Now, there's also the skill of being able to see the game and synthesize what you know about the game and your preparation for those particular teams and then being able to synthesize that on the fly and explain why you're coming to the conclusions that you do. And I just often feel with Reggie, uh, as with Charles, Charles Barkley, is that they rely on the game as they played it and they saw it in their era. And so their entire mentality is to see the game today through that prism and to judge things the way they see them or the way they saw them when they were playing. And the play with Anthony Davis is a perfect example because there was a time in the league 
where if you went up for a rebound and your hand may have touched it last, but if the opposing player's hand pushed your hand through the ball and it went out of bounds as you went for a rebound, we didn't have instant replay. And it was viewed as the ball was forced out of bounds and your inability to rebound, it was forced by that guy, the other the opponent, pushing your pushing the ball out of bounds through your hand. So it did not matter that it touched you last. And those were one of those elastic managing the game, trying to be fair as opposed to being uh, excruciatingly correct as we now get to with the instant replays. And even with this game, the instant replays, I will say one of the reasons that it takes as long as it does is because we now have clocks that are often to the 10th of a second, but even with or not, they want to get the clock exactly right. And so that's where a lot of the time is spent. They may already know whether the call stands or whether it's reversed. It's they keep playing it over and over again to see exactly when the ball landed out of bounds or was touched by a player out of bounds and then measuring that against the clock to make sure that they get it right. So just to help you understand. And I just wish, you know what, if we lose a second here or there, other than, you know, where it's going to really make a difference, uh, three-tenths of a second, half a second, in the last two, three seconds of a game, I understand why you want to get it exactly right. But when you're at 350 and it's 350 or it's 351, I'm sorry. I don't want to spend an extra minute. I don't even want to spend an extra 30 seconds trying to figure out whether it's 350 or 351. It bogs down the game. It makes the viewing of it painful. So I wish they would expedite that. And we'll see ultimately if they do something. Because I think the NBA is aware that that is an issue. But if Reggie had simply explained that when he played, this is how it would have been called. And this is one of the distinctions in the game being dominated by instant replay now and the exactitude that is asked for from referees in calls, then it would have made a lot more sense. Reggie doesn't do that. So that to me is half of the explanation as to why he says some of the things that he says. And then some of them are just... I don't know. It's it's in the moment. It feels as if he gets excited when a guy makes a play or two and then he says something that's extreme. Or let's just say when he said LeBron James, uh, Anthony Davis is the best big man that LeBron James has ever played with. And you have to, like, okay, you can say that, but you have to acknowledge Zadrunas Ilgauskas. You have to acknowledge Chris Bosh. You have to make it clear that you know exactly who you're comparing Anthony Davis to. And some people would make a case. And I know right now there's a lot of people that are in love with Anthony Davis because of the numbers that he puts up. But I look at what Chris Bosh did in leading the Toronto Raptors before he went to Miami. And the role and the contribution that he made in winning championships 
in Miami, and Anthony Davis has not proved that he can do those things on those stages. The And that's why I'm not a big believer in this idea that Anthony Davis is, you know, LeBron James is going to be LeBron James and Anthony Davis is going to lead the Lakers to a championship because he's not that kind of player. One-on-one, he's terrific. But you saw tonight that when they would double him or they would confuse the picture, he can't make a play. He made one play to Caruso and that was Caruso setting it up. Other than that, he does not have the ability to back somebody down or get to a certain position, see the double team coming, and find the open shooter and make that pass in a way that is going to create an open shot. That's what Charles was getting to about how, you know, that's what what AD needs to do, why he needs to be more aggressive in the post and not just get his own points but create shots for others. He's right. He needs to do that. If he was capable of that, the Pelicans would have been a perennial playoff team when he was there. And they were not that. Two playoff appearances in his seven seasons in New Orleans. One of which was they had the tiebreaker and got in as the eighth seed. Sneaking in past the Oklahoma City Thunder, who only had Kevin Durant for 27 games and Russell Westbrook for 64 they were then promptly swept out of the playoffs without winning a game by the Golden State Warriors. They made it again in 2018. They were the sixth seed playing against the Blazers, but let's keep that in context. They were one game ahead of the seventh and eighth seeds and two games from not being in the playoffs. They did upset the Portland Trail Blazers, the third seed, sweeping them out, but Anybody who watched that series knows that it was Drew Holiday and Rajon Rondo being able to lock up C.J. McCollum and Damian Lillard, which really brought the, the series in the, in the game down to Anthony Davis versus Yusuf Nurkic. And Anthony Davis got the best of Nurkic, no doubt about it. But that was the difference. I guess this is the part that I struggle with. And, and we are now adding Anthony Davis, I suppose, as an additional subject here, is... The talk about Anthony Davis as an all-time great. And obviously Kevin Garnett, Kevin Garnett gets that recognition. I don't know if Derrick Rose does because of all the injuries. John Morant at this point, I feel, doesn't get as much recognition as he should. And it confuses me because if you look at the, those guys... Derek and KG in particular. And Ja, if he ends up making the playoffs as, as a rookie, uh, leading a team to the playoffs. They've accomplished way more. I mean, KG for years in Minnesota didn't have a whole lot around him. And yet, every year, almost every year, was making it to the playoffs. Couldn't get very far, but he always made sure that the Timberwolves were one of the top 16 teams in the league. One of the top eight teams in the Western Conference. Derrick Rose, same thing with the teams that he played in Chicago from the very first time. And not only got to the playoffs, but those guys always won at least a game. So that's where I I, I see the talent that AD has. But he's not the kind of guy who leads a team. He gets his points. But does he get points for others? 
He's not a playmaker. And that's where my the idea that the Lakers are going to win because LeBron is going to be LeBron and then AD is going to be the difference maker. No. If the Lakers win, it's going to be based on what LeBron James did against the Clippers, which is make some defensive plays at the end and score a winning bucket. Now, whether at 35 he's capable of doing that remains to be seen. And that takes us to our next subject, because I don't know if I answered the, the Reggie Miller question, but I, I maybe because I can't. I can't explain why someone who knew the game as well as he did as a player seems to miss so much now, other than maybe he just doesn't explain the difference between the way he sees the game or the way he saw it when he was playing versus the way the game is played now. It's hard for me to believe that he doesn't know the difference and he's just working off of a different template. I will say this. This is why, you know, when anybody comes with the old canard for someone like myself who's in the media and says, well, you never played the game. Yeah, you're right. I never played in the NBA. But having played in the NBA is not proof that you can analyze the game, that you can break down the game, that you understand the game as you watch it. And I believe Reggie, among others, is evidence of that. You can be a great player and not be able to synthesize your knowledge of the game with what you are seeing right in front of you and sharing that with an audience. That is a separate talent that has nothing to do with having actually played in the game. Now, LeBron James made the plays that he had to make at the end of the game. And I was, I don't know what to make of the Clippers because those last two plays were, they weren't plays. I don't know what they were thinking with the last possession. It was, let's give the ball to Kawhi Leonard and let's go get something. And I guess I understand it from this standpoint in that if it's going to be LeBron versus Kawhi, Kawhi showed from the very beginning of the game, as did every Clipper. Patrick Beverly, Paul George, it didn't matter who it was. They were not afraid of attacking LeBron James at the defensive end. Some of that may simply be, we need to attack because we need to wear him out. And some of it may be, I can go by this guy. I can get my shot. Certainly, Kawhi demonstrated that for a good part of the game. And maybe that's why they decided, let's just put the ball in his hands and see what he can get. LeBron did a nice job, got him stuck. Ball went to Paul George. LeBron did a great job of pressuring uh, Paul out. I have to think that if we get to a playoff series, and this is a playoff game, they will run something specific that is going to create an opening for one or the other of those guys. They didn't do that in this case. But it also worries me in that you can put all the excuses you want out there for the Clippers. Montrez Harrell wasn't there. Lou Williams wasn't there. Patrick Beverly was just coming out of quarantine. Landry Shambit, whose only job is to knock down shots, couldn't hit one, no matter how wide open he was. And there's, there's plenty of excuses and rationales why this two-point loss is actually a plus for the Clippers. But I've seen this all year. 
and it is a an arrogance that breeds laziness and lack of discipline. Letting Alex Caruso go coast to coast because Marcus Morris is looking for somebody else to pick him up when Marcus Morris actually isn't guarding anybody is just a, a failure in the final minutes of a game. Letting LeBron get his own rebound and put back is a failure at the end of a game. Not executing better than they did on the last possession. I mean, they just, they thought they could mess around and still win. And ultimately, they, they didn't. And these are habits. There's a mentality that comes with grinding it out and sticking to the plan and doing the little things, boxing out, picking up in transition, not looking for somebody else, taking quality shots, being secure with the ball that is required possession to possession, minute to minute in the postseason. And the Clippers have not developed that tenacity that endurance of mind to play that way. Now, maybe their depth, maybe their experience will, will win out. I could see it certainly winning out against the Lakers just because LeBron looked old for a good part of that game. The difference in athleticism between Paul George and Kawhi Leonard and LeBron was stark. LeBron couldn't get anything done. They'll they'll replay his first basket, that dunk where he turned the corner and nobody came over and he flushed it. They'll they'll play that countless times and make you think that wow, he still got it. Well, there was that was it. I mean, that really was it. And granted, at 35, knowing this is going to be a long slog, he very well may be just bringing himself along slowly. But I look at the weight that he's going to have to carry with this team, particularly at the defensive end. Danny Green could not guard, could not stay in front of Kawhi or Paul George. And Danny Green, as a championship caliber player, was capable of doing that with some of the better offensive threats in the game, once upon a time. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. He's not there now. And I look across the board, Deion Waiters. He can knock down big shots. Showed you he could do that. Can he defend? Was not able to stay in front of Landry Shamit, who is not all that great off the bounce. So, and I think, I'm trying to think who else, who else got it. Might have been Pat Bev in the paint. A little up and under. Reverse pivot. So I just look at them defensively and what they're going to require from LeBron James at 35 at the defensive end. And then honestly, he's going to have to be that playmaker at the end of games. I have to think that the Lakers were hoping that Rajon Rondo could capture some of his playoff Rondo magic 
and take some of that responsibility off of LeBron's plate. Rajan obviously is now out for at least six to eight weeks, and so I don't expect him to be a factor uh, in their playoff run, however long it lasts. And the reality is, you look at the rest of that team, I don't see another playmaker. This is the other element that came to my attention watching the game tonight, is that we're talking about the Lakers playing for a championship, which means going to the finals, which means a deep playoff run. And I look at their roster, and I'm looking at Kyle Kuzma, Alex Caruso, and Contavious Caldwell-Pope. Now, all three of those guys, as a result of the way the Lakers are currently constituted, are going to have to play meaningful minutes for this team. All the way to the end. And do you know how many playoff games of experience they have? It's four total. All belonging to KCP when he was with the Detroit Pistons. So, there is no experience here. There's no experience of playing that long and deep. And obviously, this is a different season because of the, 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 the layoff. But there's still an understanding of the pressure that comes with each round and each game. And guys who have never experienced that before, there's a learning curve to it. I'd throw AD into that mix too. He's been to the second round once. He's been to the playoffs twice previously in seven seasons. Compare that to the Clippers. And maybe this is where their arrogance comes from. Their belief that once they get to the postseason, if they run into the Lakers, that they're going to be able to go to another level, that they know exactly what they have. And a big part of that is you look at every guy that they rely on. They all have playoff experience. And the guys that they've added, Reggie Jackson, Joakim Noah, Marcus Morris, who knows what they'll be able to contribute. But you know that it's not going to be, if they fail to, it's not going to be because the moment was too big for them. They're a known quantity. What Reggie Jackson does is known. Marcus Morris, what he can do is known. Joakim Noah, maybe a little more questionable because we don't know exactly where he is physically. But I don't think it's an accident that they added him to the uh, to, to the roster or the fact that it looks like he's going to get some playing time. Avica Zubac is one of the guys that only has four playoff games under his belt. Landry Shamit has six, but he's very up and down. Those are guys that they'll get a look, but... They won't get a lot of looks. If they come in and they give a minute or two and it's clear that they're not ready, they're, they won't see the floor again. Doc Rivers has other options. And if you go down their roster, like all of these guys have vast playoff experience. Reggie Jackson has been to the Western Conference Finals. Joakim Noah has been to the Eastern Conference Finals. And these aren't even the guys that are at the core of the team. When you look at the main guys, Lou Williams, Montrez Harrell, Kawhi, Paul George, Pat Beverly, Montrez Harrell is the least experienced in the playoffs with only 13 games under his belt, although he averaged 18 and five and a half last year. So 
I, I just I look at Montrez and I'm not worried that he's going to be intimidated by the circumstance. But even if he is, you look at what they have to supply added experience or to squeeze more out of the bench. This is where Doc Rivers is going to have to be shrewd about who he plays and how he plays them. But you got Marcus Morris, 32 playoff games. Patrick Patterson, 47 playoff games. Jamichael Green, 21 playoff games. I already mentioned Joakim Noah and Reggie Jackson. So the wealth of experience, postseason experience, and understanding of how to play possession by possession under pressure. The Clippers have the resources, as opposed to the Lakers, who are going to be looking to Alex Caruso or Kyle Kuzma or Contavious Caldwell-Pope to play big minutes and big roles. I mean, make contributions deep into the playoffs. We've seen it time after time. Teams who win championships... It's the 7th, 8th, and ninth guys who come off the bench and they just make one or two critical plays where the other team's 7th, 8th, and ninth guys don't. We've seen that in series or matchups that are expected to be close. And again, that's why you know, going to the other side of the, of the bracket, if you will, is why I still like the Toronto Raptors because of their depth of experience. Experience is not everything. But a lot of advancing in the playoffs is all about just not making mistakes. Staying with what you know. And as a young player who's never been there before, or an older player who's never been there before, there is the tendency to think that the playoffs are different and that it asks for something extraordinary. Or, I need to go and make a play. When you haven't made a play all year, or... That's not how your team is built. Stay with your role. There's an understanding that comes with the experience of simply seeing what works and what doesn't in the postseason and dealing with the pressure of possession by possession, not making mistakes, not beating yourself. Number one thing that has to be done for teams to ultimately win a championship. Kyrie Irving, as we know, has won a championship. And he's our last subject of the podcast. And I've wanted to talk about this. Maybe it's my conscience that leads me to talk about this because I am perplexed. I am trying to come to terms with what Kyrie Irving has done and who he is. And a lot of it primarily simply because of his acts of benevolence in the last few days or weeks. As some may or may not know, the big, the big thing was he donated $1.5 million to WNBA players to uh, provide them with financial uh, assistance uh, if they choose not to play this season, if they choose not to play in the bubble, whether it's because of COVID-19 or whether it's because they are lending themselves to the social justice movement, whatever it is, Kyrie Irving is willing to hear their case and say, I will pay you not to play in order to allow you to do these other things. On the face of it, I, first of all, I don't, have anything, I don't have anything against it. Anybody who's willing to give up any amount of money 
for someone else is not a bad thing. And I've never thought Kyrie Irving is a bad guy in spite of all the issues that he may have had in Boston or Cleveland or even this past season in in Brooklyn. I just don't think that he's inherently a bad guy. I, I feel as if in some ways he's just, he's kind of a lost guy. He's He's searching for himself. And I don't want to get all Dr. Phil and uh, Captain Woo Woo about this, but that's what I feel as if drives a lot of his decision making. And that's what brings me to wanting to explain why I feel the way I do about his latest charitable acts, which is, it's just weird. It's, It's not bad. It's just weird. And I've been trying to kind of figure out for myself why it feels weird, why it feels off, why when I see and have seen the congratulations and the acknowledgments of what a great guy Kyrie is for what he's done, it it just kind of hits me wrong. Why I don't share that that feeling. I think a big part of it simply is that... When I look at WNBA players and I look at their desire not to play in order to do these other things, whatever they might be, it just doesn't strike me as the first place to donate $1.5 million as far as what is going to create the most good. Now, certainly up to Kyrie to decide how he wants to spend that money and who he wants to give it to. But it's a little bit like, you know, the cousin who, you know, they're doing all right, but, um, you know, they, they really like fishing. So you want to buy them a boat or they'd really like to go and see penguins. And so, you know what? I'm going to finance you going to be able to see penguins. There's nothing wrong with that. You're doing them a solid. It's a nice thing. But... If you have the wherewithal, uh, no, it's not even that. It's, is that something that I'm going to go, oh man, unbelievable dude, that he would do that. Like that's, it is, what a great contribution. I just can't go there. And I and I guess I can't go there because I, it, I feel as if we're making a big deal out of Kyrie for doing this for WNBA players. And we don't do nearly, we don't make the same big deal for other guys who I think are, have done more and are doing things that make a lot more sense, are, are answering needs that are far more critical. Uh, Tobias Harris, probably don't know that he's donated a million dollars to provide quality education to children, or John Wall and what he's donated to the Leukemia Society, or Steph Curry and his uh, his involvement with the United Nations and USAID and providing uh, nets uh, to prevent uh, malaria through uh, mosquitoes. Or J.J. Barea hopping on a plane and going to Puerto Rico to deliver goods to uh, the Hurricane Maria victims. I could go down the line. Dame Lillard and what he's done for kids and education in Portland. And I was having this conversation with a friend of mine about about Kyrie's act. And he said, yeah, you know, it's along the same lines as, you know, so many, so many players uh, are funding AAU programs or programs for kids to play basketball. And he's right. There are, 
but but to me that's a that's a different category like i'm i'm providing the means to give somebody an opportunity to better their lives is that what Kyrie is doing for WNBA players and to be perfectly honest i some of this is certainly colored by knowing what Kyrie just did when it came to the players making a decision on whether to play in the bubble or not. There were plenty of conversations had about whether players should play or they shouldn't play. And would it interfere with the social justice movement? Is this the right time? The dangers of COVID? All of that. All of that was discussed. And ultimately it was determined, look, This is our livelihoods. It will be a benefit to the league, but to people in general, to bring basketball back. And the harsh reality is that the business of the NBA, the the league's ability to function, would be severely impaired if they had not come back and played. I am convinced that the owners would have torn up the collective bargaining agreement and they would have negotiated much harsher terms. And that would have not only affected the players currently in the league, obviously in a big way, but but players for the next 10 years would have been negatively affected. Players are making extraordinary amounts. Even the minimum is an extraordinary amount at this point. All of that, they would have been putting all of that at risk in order to follow the social justice causes or to protect their parent, uh, their, their families or decide simply it's not the right time. We don't want to come back and play. All of that was discussed. All of it was decided, look, let's bite the bullet. Let's do the right thing. Let's do the economically smart thing. And then, and Kyrie was, was in, or at least listening to those conversations. And then after it was determined which direction they were going to go. He brought up the idea that there should be a certain faction of players that if they didn't want to play or we should go build our own league. Or, As one player said to me, it was Kyrie talking to hear himself talk. Now that is a harsh assessment. And for all I know, that may have been the way it came off to that particular player. Kyrie's heart was in the right place. Hey, let's go back and rethink this. Maybe there's some guys that didn't speak up but here's the thing. So it, when he first heard about this plan, it was discussed among the leaders of the players union, of which Kyrie was one. And he had the opportunity to present that voice, even if he was the only one, to say, look, there's a lot of guys that are in the rank and file that feel as if they shouldn't be playing. And I think we need to recognize those guys or we need to hear from them or simply bring it up. And what I've been told, he did not. He didn't bring it up until after the fact. For whatever reason, I don't know. But it was also a matter of advertising that he was bringing this up. I say all that to say that the WNBA move struck me as a bit of grandstanding. First of all, the things that I mentioned... I didn't even mention Kevin Durant pledging 
$10 million to help high school students in PG County. So there's been guys that have given far more money than 1.5, as big as that is. And honestly, when you look at the salaries these guys have, I could give you the exact you know comparison of what somebody making 50,000, um, what, what that donation is for them compared to somebody who's making 220 million and what 1.5 million is. But it's, it's not... It's not a hardship. It's a big number to most everybody, except to somebody who's making $220 million. <laughs> it's, it, it doesn't land quite the same. Yet, it's still a donation. It's still a charitable act. It comes down to this. I know that there are dozens, even maybe multiple, multiple dozens of players who have done more for much longer for far more meaningful causes than what Kyrie just did for the WNBA players. And I've never seen the uh, applause and congratulations and acknowledgements for them to the level that I saw for Kyrie. As someone who grew up in a blue-collar family, it also strikes me wrong to subsidize people for not doing their job. The challenge is to do what you do to support yourself and your family and do these charitable things. So, good on you, Kyrie. I will give the polite golf clap, but I'm not going to give more than that. I'm going to leave it at that. And I'm going to leave this podcast at that as well. Uh, Don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want us to do something for you, screenshot that rating or review and send it to at Buker Friends and you will be eligible to win some prizes. We'd also, we just like to hear what you think. I like to hear what you think of the podcast, what you'd like to hear more of, what you'd like to hear less of. Are there guests that you'd like to hear from in particular? Uh, open to all of that. This is as I see it, my conversation with you and you, while we can't do it live and in person, you can certainly influence what it is that I talk about. One of the things I do want to get to in one of the upcoming podcasts, and we'll see if we have time or whether uh, the NBA and it being back in business supersedes uh, this subject. But for those who may not know, uh, I went... Uh, as I mentioned, come from a lower middle class family in the Midwest, ended up going to an Ivy League school, and ended up going to a number of people that are very prominent on Fox News now. Uh, worked with some of them on a ultra-conservative newspaper at Dartmouth. And seeing them operate now and their juxtaposition to sports when... I was the primary sports writer for that newspaper. Fills me full of thoughts about what we're seeing and that nexus between the two and why I did what I did back then and why I think the way that I think now. We will get to that, maybe in the next podcast, but certainly sometime soon. In the meantime, please stay safe out there. Wear a mask. Look, I worked out the other day. I was on the treadmill wearing a mask. It ain't easy, but it's doable. And 
if I think it might keep somebody from not getting sick, not just myself, but anybody else, forget dying, just not getting sick. And it means wearing a mask anytime I'm in the gym. I'm going to go ahead and do that. So not telling you what to do. Well, I guess I am. Wear a mask. It's the right thing to do. All right, that does it. As always, sincerely, thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.